Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 27, The Way of Yin and Yang. This week, we're going to discuss the rise, and from a certain perspective, the fall, of one of the more influential ideologies in Japanese history, Onmyodo, or The Way of Yin and Yang, the same characters being read as either Inyo or Onmyo in Japanese. This is a really fascinating subject that allows us to talk about everything from Japanese cosmology to the power politics surrounding religion, but before we get started, there's a bit of clarification and background necessary to make sure that we're all on the same page. Onmyodo, as the name might imply, is based on the dualist Chinese theory of yin-yang, whereby the universe is composed of a mixture of opposed forces of yin, representing, among other things, light, masculinity, and power, and yang, representing darkness, femininity, and weakness. These two are not polar or incompatible opposites in the sense of, say, good and evil in the Western tradition. Rather, an ideal situation balances the two because both are necessary for harmony. A good example would be, for example, the relationship between men and women in society. A society dominated entirely by yin, or the male force, would not function, nor would a society dominated entirely by yang. After all, if nothing else, you need both to create the next generation. Thus, according to the theory, the ideal society is a balance between the two. Onmyodo also draws on theories of the wuxing, or the five Chinese elements, which are earth, fire, air, water, and metal. Much like yin-yang, the harmony between these five components of the world is seen as essential for balance and stability. In particular, the harmony of the wuxing is derived from two cycles, one destructive, the other creative. The destructive cycle functions as follows. Wood feeds fire, fire creates earth, or ash in this case, earth bears metal, metal enriches water, water nourishes wood. The destructive cycle works as follows. Wood parts earth, earth dams water, water extinguishes fire, fire melts metal, metal chops wood. By understanding the five elements and these two sets of relationships, theoretically, one can understand the way the universe functions in its entirety. The classic texts on this subject are the I Ching, often called the Book of Changes, which dates from somewhere around 800 BCE, and the Tao Te Ching, credited to the great Taoist master Lao Tzu. Though no one knows for sure if Lao Tzu even existed, the name literally just means ancient master. The Tao Te Ching probably dates to somewhere between 700 to 500 BCE. Of course, not to get too sidetracked, but there are scholars who argue that instead of, or in addition to, talking about the nature of these two polar opposites in a philosophical sense, Lao Tzu was giving political advice dressed up in fancy philosophical talk in order to appeal to the educated aristocracy. The idea sounds a little crazy at first, but it's actually got some merit. If you've got the time and the inclination, go read The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli, who, by the way, is also a deeply misunderstood figure to my reckoning, but that's not at all relevant to what we're talking about, and then read The Tao Te Ching, paying close attention to the parts about keeping people around you in ignorance and making sure your actions are opaque to those around you. I'm just saying, maybe there's some merit to it. Anyway, the essential premise of the text, which in turn provide the essential premise of On Myodo, is that understanding the relationship between yin and yang would enable a person to live in harmony with the world, maintain balance in their lives, 
and even according to some more mystical formulations, develop magical powers or predict the future. Like Chinese administration and language, these ideas were imported into Japan nearly a thousand years later, in the 500s AD. If you'll recall back from episode 2, a lot of these traditional Chinese customs were imported by the Soga clan in an effort to secure their own power by becoming the purveyors of Chinese high culture to the Japanese aristocracy. After the Soga were destroyed in 645 AD, the Imperial House and the Fujiwara family continued to patronize Chinese learning, since it was now associated with being cultured or intellectual. The Imperial government took to theories of Yin-Yang, or Onmyo, and established what was called the Onmyo-ryo, or Yin-Yang Bureau, as a subsection of the Jingikan, or the Office of Religious Affairs. The Onmyo-ryo was responsible for, among other things, astronomy, calendar-keeping, and divination. Here's where it's important to stop and mention one thing. All of this sounds pretty religious to us, which would naturally raise the question of how Onmyo-do competed with the native religious traditions of Shinto, as well as with Chinese Buddhism. Thinking of Onmyo-do as a religion, though, is a little too modern. Onmyo wasn't a religion as we understand it today, mainly because one of the ways religion is commonly understood today is as apart from, and sometimes in opposition to, the tradition of empiricism and evidence-based observation that forms the backbone of modern science. Prior to the advent of that tradition as a separate intellectual trend, though, most people wouldn't have thought of it like that. Ideas like Onmyo, or for that matter the ideas of Plato or the Greek philosophers relating to the nature of the world, or the long count in the Incan philosophical tradition, were simply codifications of the universe as people understood it to work through what they themselves could observe and understand about the universe. In essence, Onmyo isn't a religion in the sense of these are gods, appease them, and they will treat you well. It was a form of what is called metaphysics, an attempt to understand and codify the fundamental nature of the world. It is, in other words, an attempt at science before anyone had any idea what science actually was. That's not to say there wasn't bleed-over between Onmyo and Japanese religion, more Shinto than Buddhism, since Buddhism was more codified and thus harder to alter. After all, both religion and metaphysics, and arguably modern science itself, stem from the same fundamental idea, the desire to explain and understand the seemingly unexplainable nature of why things are the way they are. There's also a more practical bleed-over effect. We'll discuss some aspects of it at the end of the episode, but one of the most important changes brought about in the practice of Shinto as a result of the arrival of Onmyo and of Buddhism was the creation of full-time Shinto priests at Shinto shrines. Prior to the arrival of these Chinese traditions, practiced full-time by their sages, Shinto had been practiced part-time and local shrines were maintained by the community. Anyway, getting back to our story, at this point the practice of Onmyo was pretty scattered. Anyone with an interest in the practice could pick up the basic concepts and become a practitioner of the art, called an onmyoji. Onmyo proliferated across the countryside, but aside from a general focus on doctrines regarding yin yang and the yijing, there wasn't much consistency in the forms and styles of any two given onmyoji. All of that changed, though, in the 900s, with the rise of two clans of onmyoji. The first clan were the Kamo, led by Kamo no Tarayuki. The second, and by far the more famous, had its origins in Kamono Tadayuki's most famous student, a man called Abenoseime. Abenoseime is sometimes described as the Merlin of Japan, and I think that's actually a pretty accurate description. He had a huge array of magical powers ascribed to him, 
and features predominantly in the records of the era, as well as in later dramatizations. We'll talk a bit about modern depictions of him at the end of the show, since it ties into the modern state of Onmyodol, but suffice it to say that in various places, he is described as having powers ranging from the ability to control Oni, or demons, to the ability to transform things with his mind, to the ability to predict the future, to having an extremely extended lifetime. Indeed, in later stories, his powers are attributed to a semi-divine status. Supposedly, he was the half-human son of a fox spirit named Kuzunoha, who imparted some of her powers to him. He also had a rival named Ashia Dolman, who constantly tried to usurp his position of prestige, but was always made to look the fool by virtue of Seimei's superior command of Onmyodo. The most famous story of their battles involved divining the contents of a locked box. Dolman paid a servant to fill the box with 15 oranges, and then divined that that was what the box contained. Seimei, not having any of that nonsense, transformed the oranges into rats, predicted the presence of 15 rats, and then won the contest, presumably then performing the classical Japanese version of a mic drop before moonwalking out of the room. But what do we actually know about Abe no Seimei? Well, he definitely did exist. We've got contemporary records that mention him and a verifiable genealogy as well. He's also got a heraldic emblem, or mon. It's a five-pointed star designed to represent the five Chinese elements, looking just like a pentacle. Our best guess is that he lived from somewhere around 921 AD to somewhere around 1005 AD, but it's difficult to be sure because we know almost nothing about his early life. He also crops up in a wide variety of legends and tales far outside of his actual lifespan. For example, he also makes a brief appearance in the tale of the Heike, set almost 200 years after his death. These fictional embellishments, which were probably designed to give tales a little bit of that extra zing to make them more popular, make it a little harder for us to be sure exactly what was and was not part of the verifiable and historical Seimei's life. Unless, of course, you're inclined to believe that he actually could live forever. What we do know is that the Kamo clan had already become prominent enough to receive patronage from the imperial family itself, and Abe no Seimei became respected enough at his craft that he began serving as an imperial advisor. Specifically, he was supposedly able to predict the abdication of an emperor by observing the movements of the stars. His reputation and his elevation to the rank of imperial advisor made his style of onmyodo, which he clarified in a text called the Senji Ryaketsu, the official style of onmyodo endorsed by the imperial government. Unfortunately, this was also around the time that the authority of the imperial family was beginning to plummet. The Heian government was growing weak and eventually was supplanted by the rising power of the samurai. Abe's style of onmyodo failed to gain much traction outside of Kyoto proper. Dependent as they were on imperial largesse, until the Tokugawa clan took control of the country and began steadily funding the imperial court once more, the Abe clan and its descendants, who called themselves the Tsuchimikado, were, like everyone else at the imperial court, unable to exert influence beyond Kyoto itself. After the victory of the Tokugawa in 1600, the imperial court was given a small stipend to fund itself, equivalent to a mid-ranking daimyo, and the Tsuchimikado were able to begin asserting the primacy of Abe no Seimei's style of onmyodo. They were able to obtain an imperial decree stating that their style of divination was the only acceptable one in Japan, and that all diviners would need to be licensed by them. Decree in hand, they then went to the Tokugawa, 
who agreed to use the power of the Bakfu, the samurai government, to enforce said decree. Of course, saying you'll do something and actually doing it are two different things. The Tokugawa continuously stalled the Tsuchimikado, and didn't even begin enforcing the decree until the 1790s. This got the Tsuchimikado into some pretty intense legal battles with other schools of divination, most notably the practitioners of a folk tradition called Shugendo, which will also be getting its own episode down the line. Sometimes Abe's descendants won, but generally speaking, the Bakfu had more important things to do. As a result, quote-unquote standard onmyodo never really asserted authority anywhere beyond the major urban centers of Osaka, Kyoto, Edo, and Nagoya and their surrounding areas. Local traditions of divination and unlicensed practitioners of onmyodo dominated the rest of the country, and to the end, the battle between official and unofficial onmyodo was never resolved. When the Tokugawa fell in 1868, on the surface it seemed like good times for the practice of onmyodo. After all, the Tsuchimikado were patronized by the emperor, who was now restored to power. But the thing is, the arrival of Western science and scientific understanding, and the westernizing impulses of the Meiji government, removed the metaphysical underpinnings of Onmyodo, which was now seen as pointless superstition. In addition, the government was attempting to marshal religion to serve the purpose of national unity, formulating a national religion based on Shinto. That was the only mystic organization that was going to get any imperial support from then on. So what happened to the Onmyoji? Well, a lot of them actually became Shinto priests. After all, with the expansion of shrines going on under the government, there were plenty of openings, and these were folks with plenty of practice dealing with mystical affairs. This is actually where a lot of the fortune-telling aspects of Shinto come from. For example, Omikuji, the written fortunes you can buy at a Shinto shrine, are originally an Onmyodo tradition. Essentially, you buy a random fortune written on paper, and keep it if it's a good one. If it's a bad one, you fold up the paper and stick it either on a tree, or on a bunch of metal wires provided for that purpose, so that the bad fortune will associate itself with that object rather than with you. Onmyodo is also the origin of the idea that certain years of life, such as the age of 25 for men, are inauspicious. In addition to its survival as part of Shinto, in recent years there's been a revival of popular interest in the craft of Onmyodo itself. Part of it comes from popular exposure. A series of novels, manga, and anime about Onmyodo, starting with Yume Makura Baku's Onmyoji series, which is a novelization of the life of Abe no Seme, written in the 1990s, sparked a renewed wave of interest in the history and practice of Onmyodo. Of course, some of this interest also comes from the fact that Abe no Seime has been sexed up quite a bit. In traditional depictions, he's a pallid, kind of fat, middle-aged man. Nowadays, he's much more of a pretty boy. If you're familiar with the term, he's more of a bishonin. Unsurprisingly, this makes the series rather popular with younger girls. Also unsurprisingly, sometimes the series are even sold with a somewhat homoerotic undertone. For example, the Onmyoji novel depicts a very close relationship between Abe no Seime and a member of the Minamoto clan of Buke, the early samurai, named Minamoto no Hiromasa. Neither man is married, and they spend a lot of their time together, resulting in what one friend of mine referred to as, quote, Sherlock Holmesian levels of subtle homoerotic undertones. Which is not to say that that's inaccurate, homoeroticism was a very big part of Heian culture, and there's plenty of it to go around, but that's a whole other episode in and of itself. 
Anyway, this boom has even revitalized shrines associated with Seimei and with Onmyodo. The Seimei Shrine, founded after Abe no Seimei's death, now does a brisk trade in mementos depicting him in, of course, his modern, sexier look. A lot of the kitsch sold by shrines is targeted at younger girls. My personal favorite is a face-cleansing cloth branded with Shikigami, a type of minor deity associated with divination. By the way, the current fascination with Abe no Seimei is also sometimes attributed to that greatest of all wizards, Harry Potter. The first few books hit Japan around the same time that the modern Onmyoji boom started, and some theorize that in part it comes from a desire to find a domestic tradition of magic to compete with the western one represented by the works of J.K. Rowling. There's also been an associated boom in divination. Fortune-telling boutiques have cropped up in the trendy Tokyo neighborhood of Harajuku, which blend traditional methods of fortune-telling, such as name-based divination or astrology based on the five elements, with modern systems of personality divination based on blood type or on the western zodiac symbols. The association between divination and the golden age of the Heian period is often used to lend this stuff some legitimacy, even if it's completely different from actual Heian divination practices. So all of this is interesting and fun, but what's the point? Why are we talking about it? Well, part of it is an understanding of the history and surprising permanence of this metaphysical system and how influential it remains to this day. More importantly, though, to my mind is this. Onmyodo is a symbol of how adaptable traditions can be. The Onmyo tradition has managed to be whatever it had to be to survive, and in some cases thrive, throughout Japanese history. An official system to serve the needs of the imperial government, a local one to address the needs of everyday people, or a pop culture symbol designed to sell manga and weirdly branded beauty products. It's always fascinating to me to see how people rebrand history and historical events to give them relevance to the modern day. One wonders, of course, what Abe no Seimei would think of being depicted this way. Of course, if he really could live forever, he might well be the one selling those Shikigami beauty products. I suppose we'll never know. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.